Last few weeks we've been talking about uh, or pondering the book of 1 Corinthians and Paul's letter, that ancient letter from the first century, written to a church that was mired in conflict. Uh, They had had all kinds of power plays going on. There was a disproportionate uh, leaning in on knowledge uh, to such an extent that they are alienating and calling people weak and holding it against them. Uh, There's all kinds of just oddities that go on when you become a divided community like that, and that was happening in Corinth. Um, We don't know anything what it's like to live in a divided world, so it's very foreign to us to see what that might look like, let alone someone calling others weak. I mean, we've never seen that in our political discourse. This morning we turn our attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It's actually our last week. We'll be in 1 Corinthians as the lectionary moves us on to some other parts in the coming weeks. But within uh, Christian ministry circles, the designation gospel partners, you ever heard the phrase gospel partners, it's become almost synonymous with being a financial donor. Television preachers use this kind of language when soliciting funds, as do a great number of ministries. A, A simple Google search will net you those kind of results, and I actually did one this past week, and not too few ministries showed up with frequent use of the word donate attached to being a gospel partner. Of course, with all this talk of money, it's no wonder ancients and moderns alike might get just a little bit confused when they imagine, what is the church supposed to be about, or what is the church about? It seems like we're just asking for money all the time. But right there at the end of today's reading, what we just heard there in 1 Corinthians, right at the very end, that ancient writer says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel, so that I might become a partner in it. Gospel and partner, right there together in the text. But perhaps not in the way that we might have previously imagined. And so, we come to the text this morning and we ask that question. What does Paul have in mind here? What is Paul calling us to, us moderns, today to live a life that looks more appropriate than maybe the one we've adopted for ourselves? If you read through 1 Corinthians and you arrive uh, here at this chapter, if you're reading chapter by chapter and you arrive at the beginning of chapter 9, no one would fault you at this point if you thought Paul was getting a little defensive. You have to go back to the very beginning of the chapter, but you'll see in verse 1, he jumps, he jumps right out into a different kind of tone as we read that. The end of chapter 8 actually has this kind of thing. It says, therefore, which, which operates in kind of a nice little bow on what he's talking about that moment. But he says, therefore, if food is a cause of their falling, I will never again eat meat, so that I may not cause one of them to fall. Again, tying a bow on it kind of wraps things up. But then he startles us in chapter 9, verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? It's like, man, where did that just come from? Like, Paul's just start throwing this stuff out there. It feels like Paul, at this point, is going to take on a new topic. That this ancient writer is introducing an entirely new discussion that he's titled, The Rights of an Apostle. Now, I didn't make that up. That's the heading that the, uh, the publishers have put in there, the English publishers here have added as a modern title here. But that all would seem rather strange way of writing something. To write a letter and then midway through it all of a sudden jump out all defensive-like and change topics or change gears at that point. And Paul would agree, that is strange, and so that's not what he does. But rather what happens here is this is a section that's connected to what we talked about last week. Now I know some of you are here for the first time, or you, haven't, you weren't here last week, so you're going to have to go out to YouTube and go back and listen to last week's. But this is no departure from what we heard in chapter 8. But rather it builds upon what has been said. 
When Paul writes in chapter 8, but take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak, chapter 9 then shows us how Paul gives shape to that in his own life. And when similarly he writes that we have already heard uh, from the end of chapter 8, that section about if food is a cause of their falling, I will never again eat meat so that I may not cause one of them to fall, we hear in chapter 9 an affirmation of how Paul personally puts this into practice. And putting these things into practice is for good reason. Note the seriousness of the issues that are plaguing this church from chapter 8. They're identified in at least two ways. First, in verse 11 of chapter 8, the bad behavior is described as destroying the weak among you. So just imagine the type of bad characters or bad acting that's going on in a community where the word that's used to describe what you're up to is you're destroying other people. Again, we don't have any place in our world today to kind of draw a similarity to that. We see that all the time. Communities that ravage themselves and destroy themselves with the words they use and the way they divide themselves, the way we orientate ourselves to each other for superiority and to stamp people down. And Paul says here, destroying the weak amongst you. And then in the second one we see is in verse 12 of chapter 8. These efforts stand not only as sinning against their fellow uh, believers, but also against Jesus himself. If this first charge doesn't get your attention, if that first one didn't get your attention, this second one is a lot harder to shake off, especially if you believe that yourself to be in right standing or superior position as far as what it means to be a follower of God and doing God's work. Paul says here, think again. And to such a rebuke, we might suspect someone coming back with this challenge that we might ourselves say, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to levy such a charge against me? Paul makes clear what they know already. He's an apostle. That's made all the clearer by the fact that this community that he's speaking to exists. He lets them know that in verse 2 of chapter 9. But perhaps more importantly here isn't who Paul claims to be, but rather how he goes about his business, or how we might say he apostles, and why he does it that way. There's a modesty to Paul's life, one that doesn't lay claim to all the benefits that he would be entitled to culturally. And he does that by design. His detractors, of course, may have, in fact, been using this against him to question his authenticity, to look at him and say, hey, you don't do all the big-time stuff that other teachers might do, and you don't claim the biggest things for yourself, but rather you're giving it away. And they say, you're such a loser for doing that. Why don't you just get with the flow of things, what everybody's doing? They might have been using that, but Paul here has a vision beyond what they value. And he invites readers and hearers, both ancient and modern, to set their sights on similar sights. The effect, of course, is disruptive, to say the least. But once you see it, it's one of those things that you can't unsee. It's like that little stain on your wall at home, right? Once you see it, you can't stop seeing it. It's always there. This past week, the Seattle Times ran a story about the Sticky Pete Carroll mural that now adorns the gum wall in downtown, the Pike Place Market. Did you see that article? Do you still subscribe to the Seattle Times? Maybe we should ask that. The mural is made up of 200 pieces of chewed gum and was made as a way of honoring now former Seahawks head coach, the prolific gum chewer himself, Pete Carroll. The local artist and lifetime Seahawks fan who made the piece, Rudy Willingham, states, when I heard he was leaving, 
I knew I had to do something to pay tribute. This sense of having to do something is a feeling that many of us know, not necessarily in response to Pete Carroll's departure, but perhaps in taking action on behalf of a friend or a loved one who is in trouble. We feel compelled to act. Or maybe we hear the urgent appeal of an organization or cause that we believe in. Again, we feel compelled to have some kind of response. I've recently been made aware of a situation where a GoFundMe account was set up to help the surviving adult children of a man who died. And these, these, these children are not children anymore, they're adults. They're having trouble settling their father's estate. They, that proved to be a financial burden for them. And so they reached out uh, to a larger community to come up with the funds to help them with that. And the community responded, as many times happens with those funds. But also with those funds came responses from the same people who were sharing here, who wrote that, simil that similar refrain or something akin to it, I had to do something. We know what that feels like, where there's a sense we need to get involved. If you've ever had that feeling, you know that it's often accompanied by a nagging feeling when we have failed to heed our heart's direction. We felt a sense that we should have responded. If we don't, kind of can nag at us a bit. And there's shades of that beginning here in verse 16 around Paul's obligation to be a gospel proclaimer. Though Paul's sense here may run far deeper than my oftentimes regret that I have. Oftentimes when I see garbage on the ground, I walk by it and say, ah, I should pick that up. And then I turn around and have to go back and pick it up. It nags at me. But it's far deeper for Paul here. He accompanies his words here with, woe to me should he fail to do as much. That all seems rather strict, though. The sentiment, of course, is reminiscent, though, of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah says this in Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9, about his own obligation as a proclaimer. He writes, If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, then within me there is something like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. Perhaps this is the kind of woe that Paul is talking about in his own heart. Or perhaps the woe he has in mind is something more. Either way, just as the prophet must speak the message that God has given him, Paul must speak the gospel message that he has received, that he's been entrusted with, the obligation. But that is not the same as saying that he has to do so with any kind of charge or fee attached to it. A teacher, of course, supported by their students, hearers of the community, would not have been unheard of in the ancient world. In fact, it would have been expected that their support would come. But from these Corinthian Jesus followers, Paul asks for no charge. He doesn't charge a fee to them. He doesn't expect them to line his pocketbook. Instead, his wage, and we read this in verse 18, is to make the gospel freely available. That's payment for Paul. That the gospel is free. And he even boasts about it in verse 15. That, of course, challenges every notion these ancients would have had about success and advantage. And it even challenges us moderns as well. There's oftentimes I'll sit in committee meetings and we'll talk about getting someone to help out with something, and the next conversation that comes up is how much are we going to pay them? This, that idea would be foreign to what Paul's talking about with the Corinthians at this point. That he sees his obligation as something deeper, and there's much more of an intentionality around that. He's not looking for the type of payment we might provide to a checking account. And that seems reckless. That seems reckless. So why do it that way? Well, leading up to my senior year in high school, I got promoted to work 
as swing manager at the McDonald's where I worked. And I've, I know I've shared about working at McDonald's. Uh, there's a lot of stories there. I worked there for six years. Well, the promotion was an honor. You get to move from your normal kind of striped uniform that everybody's wearing. You now get to wear a tie. And you get to wear a dress shirt. I still have to wear the same pants I had, but everything else got to take the ball cap off. I was now manager. But it only lasted a few months. I had myself demoted to trainer. I took a pay cut and returned to the standard uniform of the ordinary crew member. My supervisors came to me and said, this, Jimmy, this is a big mistake that you're making. I don't know why you would have yourself demoted. Just think about what people are going to think when they see you now. You come back to work and you're dressed like everybody else, and now you're just a trainer. But once I found out that it was a lot harder to get time off, and I was going into my senior year of high school, hanging out with my friends seemed far more important than making 25 cents more an hour. <laughs> From my vantage point, it wasn't a difficult decision. The job didn't serve my interest. And so I took a lower position. That did. That's often the basis for the way that we operate. We look for things to do and ways to get involved based on what serves our interest. But Paul here, at least in this case, he does it differently. Yes, he derives some personal benefit. There's pleasure, there's delight by not laying claim to what he might otherwise be entitled to, a move to not hinder the gospel message. But he then takes the whole matter to another level. We see that in verses 19 and following. The list that follows describes someone who operates rather fluidly against cultural expectations, or what a biblical scholar Ben Witherington calls flexible in his general lifestyle, food, clothing, and the like. For the reason of serving in the interest of others, not serving his interest, but serving the interest of others, or what will serve them positively. That bit about not abusing your personal freedom from chapter 8 is expressed in Paul's own life. And it finds expression here in verse 19 when he says, For though I am free with respect to all, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I might gain all the more. To the Jews, verse 20, he's a Jew. To those outside the law, he's an outsider in verse 21. He even becomes weak. You see that in verse 22, perhaps a reference to his work as an artisan and a laborer, as a tent maker. That's walking through life with a light touch, not laying claim to all that one might claim for oneself. Wealth, possessions, power, prestige, you name it. And it's knowing what cultural expectations can be set aside in the interest of others. I know some folks who have volunteered to work with young people over the years who would be the first people to tell you they have no idea what they're doing, then or now. They go, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. I just heard that you need volunteers and my heart was nagging me to go and serve in this way. I don't feel like I had any of the qualifications. And so they just showed up. But the gospel compelled them to step out, to give of their time, to give of their comfort, and even in some cases, their treasure to live as gospel proclaimers to the next generation. And there's a myriad of examples where people have stepped out to give up on comfort and the prestige that they could have had in order to make the gospel known to others. When you do that kind of thing, you're operating in the field that Paul's operating here. Paul's living out this kind of hope. 
one that he articulates in verse 19 and following, for the purpose of seeing people from all walks to hear and respond and participate in that gracious, gracious invitation to join God's kingdom. In short, Paul wants them to experience God's saving power, which is at work even now in all of creation. But what also finds expression here is something Paul knows and that N.T. scholar Eric Barreto observes when he writes, a particular way of life in the community of faith. This way of life is a paradox of freedom and indebtedness, strength and weakness, boasting and humility, obligation and reward. And Barreto goes on to say, our freedom, treasured as it is, can never be absolute, for we are called to be in service to the other. Our strength is neither earned by ourselves or for our own sake. Instead, real strength is drawing alongside the weak and walking with them. Freedom is used to bring others to freedom. That's what Barreto gets at, and that's what Paul understood. Not to hinder them. We know, of course, as Gordon Fee has observed, freedom too often is abused in the direction of self-interest rather than expressed in terms of concern for others and for the progress of the gospel. But Paul here, he has an answer. He has the antidote or the remedy here. And it goes all the way back to verse 19, to become a slave to all. Paul, of course, has used that before. He talks about that in Romans and identifies himself that way. But it isn't original to him. This isn't something that Paul has coined or come up with. No, this posture of becoming a servant or a slave to all is one that goes back to the very character of Jesus. We hear that designation about Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. And Paul, of course, will say later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 1, that it is Jesus that he is imitating, that that is who he's pursuing, and that he is the model for his life. This past week, uh, we were helping my oldest decide what to bring and to show and tell at school. That's quite an ordeal to figure out what you're bringing to kindergarten show and tell. She finally chose a selection from her rock collection, which is kind of cool that she has a rock collection. I think that's super cool. But what Paul is describing here in our text is not meant to be any kind of elementary school show and tell. That this ancient Jesus follower is not inviting us as moderns to passively sit by and observe and perhaps maybe even long for the things that he's showing us or to see those things on display. Paul here isn't participating in This Is Your Life. If you remember that old, old show. I just watched an episode of it last week. On you know it, YouTube, from like 1960 or something. But Paul's not on this is your life. We're not sitting there observing what he's doing and applauding him for his accomplishments. But rather here, Jesus' followers of all eras are invited to that second part of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Paul is imitating Jesus. Paul's invitation to us the hearers and the readers, is that we're to follow in the footsteps that Paul has taken, that we too model our lives in the way that Paul has modeled his life after Christ. That we too might adopt such a life that we can ultimately say, as Paul does, I do it all for the sake of the gospel and for its progress. That together we might share in its accompanying reward. That's what it means to be a partner to the gospel. Another way to say it is, we want to be party to it. We want that for our lives as well. Well, yesterday we held a memorial service here in this room. I offer this in conclusion. In preparing for that service, I was reminded once more of a key Christian teaching 
that's emphasized over and over and over throughout the Gospels and the writing of the New Testament. And it's this, this particular teaching often escapes, it, it escapes us, it's forgotten. But alas, it peeks out to us at services like a memorial service. And here's the teaching, and I hope we never forget this. We as Christians believe in life before death. We believe in life before death. And the narrative oftentimes is to look to some sort of great beyond and wonder what might lie ahead. But the Great Commission invites us to take seriously what we already know and what has already happened and how we might participate in what God is doing in our world, in our lives today. And so with this in mind, I draw on a question that Carla works as a professor of New Testament at Wesley Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., that she challenges readers with. A question that quite appropriately draws from Paul's writing here to the Corinthians. And she asks this question, what might those of us with privilege need to relinquish so that others can see the love of God? What might it be? For those ancient Corinthians, knowledge and power plays these things had to be relinquished so that the love of God could be seen in their community. What would it be for us, for our community? What would we need to relinquish? What would we need to do individually? What would we have to set aside? If you don't like that word privilege in there or are suspicious as to whether or not you hold such cards, take it out. The question still stands. Take it out. What might we need to relinquish so that others can see the love of God? Know this, friend. As you ponder that and consider that, as you hear God's gracious invitation to you, an invitation that leads to renewal and transformation of you and all of creation, as you hear the love of God that speaks boldly into our lives and draws us to a place of order amidst the lives of disorder that we often attempt to inhabit, know that the work that you do for the Lord is not in vain. Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling the work of the Lord because you know that the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Maybe so for us in our generation this day and forevermore. Amen. Friends, let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your great love today, a love that has been exhibited to us in the words of Scripture, words that we've pondered and the, the words we've prayed and have sung together but also shown to us in the lives that have adorned this room and this chancel this morning, those young lives of, of young people from the preschool and the, the folks that have committed their lives to, to teaching and, and raising up a new generation. Lord, we thank you for these wonderful gifts that you have given to us and how they find expression in the lives of so many across this, this community. Lord, you've been gracious to us. Now lead us to those places. Be gracious to us once more in leading us to the places to, to look honestly at places in our hearts and our lives where we've settled for something far less than your love. Lord, you offer it to us freely. Help us to be ones who embrace it freely and share it as much. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.